Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week are two guests, Emma Gray, a Webby-nominated podcaster and author of A Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance, a primer on young women and activism, and Claire Fallon, also a Webby-nominated podcaster and culture critic based in New York. Together, they host the podcast Love to See It, a snarky but affectionate dissection of dating reality shows. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. I am excited as well. And um, I can hear the name of your show just like in my head, just like love to see it. (laughs) We're going to start saying it that way. I hope so. I hope we just end up like drawling the entire answers that we (laughs) deliver. Um, Do you you focus on any shows in particular? Is it just like any and all are fair game? Do you have favorites or? Well, we started with The Bachelor. Like we've been doing this since 2015. So we started just focusing on The Bachelor and then in the years since, um, you know, for our own sanity and the fact that there's just so many reality dating shows kind of in the zeitgeist now, we've expanded it. We talk about Love is Blind. um, We talk about The Ultimatum. We talk about shows like Farmer Wants a Wife. We kind of let ourselves dive into any and all reality romance and also romantic narratives in like movies and books. Yeah, right now we're recapping and discussing classic rom-coms set in high schools and and teenage rom-coms which we're having fun with during the bachelor hiatus. So, yeah, the bachelor is kind of our home base, but when we can venture a field, that's usually a treat for us at this point. <laughs> well, if you guys ever decide to end up doing Burning Love, I hope you'll let me know because uh, I would oh, have to. So Burning good. Love. Classic. Please. Where do you have to bounce to? <laughs> All right. So I think that we should get started advising people rather than simply recapping all of the work of June Diane Raphael, which I would happily do. <laughs> <laughs> I wish she starred in every TV show that we that we covered. She is exquisitely talented. Oh, so good. We've gotten a lot of emails that say Claire's voice is similar to hers actually. That would <laughs> I would I would treasure such a compliment close to my heart. It really puffs my head up. I I have to not remind myself of that too often. I I feel about her the real way that uh, Liz Lemon pretends to feel about Jenna when she tells her not to quit. And she says, don't quit. The show can't go on without you. You're funnier than Lucille Ball. You're prettier than Deborah Messing. (laughs) Same, same. All right, Claire, if you wouldn't mind reading our first letter. Absolutely. So the subject is who HRs HR. I'm so angry about this, but I don't know if I have any way of dealing with it except quitting. A supervisor who has been complaining about COVID-19 being, quote, faked and other conspiracy theories for years was loudly talking to the HR associate who sits near my cubicle about how stupid masks are. The HR associate was also laughing. I tried to ignore them and focus on my job, but he continued talking loudly about an interaction he'd recently had with a stranger where he said to them, don't make me call you the n-word he is white i was not as calm as i could have been when i stood up and confronted them but it took all my composure not to yell or cry the hr associate tried to mediate but it felt to me like she was trying to get me to be cool and stop making a big deal instead of addressing the issue the supervisor kept trying to debate me about being allowed to use that word since hr was laughing at this story before i spoke up do you think there's a point to reporting it Even if I report it to my own manager, I assume it will go through HR, who obviously thought it was funny and that I'm just an angry black woman. I really need the health insurance I get through this job, so I just don't want to quit. Plus, it would bother me if the result of this man's racism was just more black people quitting. But this makes me feel hopeless. Is it worth it to make the report, even if I might be the only one punished for it? Yeah, 
So, you know, I feel both with this letter, in some ways, this letter writer has the gift of clarity, which is the worst gift that there is, which is when something concretely and definitively bad happens um, that you can at least move ahead with like the law on your side uh, or or with real evidence in your corner. But that's about the biggest gift here. It, it's awful. And I'm so, so, so sorry. And I can only imagine how disheartening it must have been to have heard HR like laughing and going along with this anecdote. And, and so I both really, really understand why the letter writer feels sort of like hopeless to begin with, because Normally, the person she would complain to was already there and like, this anecdote's delightful. But I, I do also think if you file a complaint um, and you go above this particular HR employee's head uh, and you simply state the facts, which is like reference the racial slur that was used and the people who were present, the company is going to have a pretty substantial interest in like that's that, that that's a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Like that's a that's a Title VIII violation that prohibits racial slurs and jokes that create a hostile, intimidating, or offensive work environment. So that's not to say you have to go hire a lawyer right now, but I, I think step one would be a written complaint to your boss and the head of HR, mentioning exactly what happened and who was there. Uh, and also maybe get a meeting with a lawyer just in case uh, the company's immediate response is not like significant and bending over backwards to fire people. Yeah, I think that was sort of my initial reaction, too, is that this person understands exactly how much is lined up against her making this report. And she's analyzed so much of the situation quite accurately. But you're right this opens the company up to legal liability. Like this isn't just a question of an HR associate who has the full discretion to make this go away. Like this could be a really big issue for the company and there, the HR associate does not run the company. There are people that this issue can be taken to who have some authority over how this is handled other than this HR associate. It, it's sort of conflated whether this person is the only HR person at the company or not. I was wondering that that too. Like, what is the structure of HR? How big is the company? Because all of those things can make a difference. Like, I completely understand why this letter writer feels sort of trapped because she does see the world around her so clearly. She knows that this big thing that was very wrong was done. And she also knows the realities that often HR is useless and often you can do all of the right things and still the systems that aren't built for you won't function for you. And so I really, really felt for her in hearing this letter. But I do think that I agree that she should ultimately make a report and then at least there is a written paper trail of the fact that this happened. Yeah. And and like you, I think I, I also agree just because something is uh, like unconscionable or obviously unprofessional or wrong or obviously on its face illegal does not always mean that the company will, you know, right away make everything great. And so I don't want to um, be too like, good news, this was illegal. No company ever like turns an eye against like illegal behavior. But um, I would encourage you to use that to your advantage. And, and as you say, to get it in writing and to get your side of the story out as fast as you can, I, I think is also important just so you are able to make the complaint before potentially the supervisor tries to cover his ass by lying. Because I just think the kind of guy who would say this at work is absolutely the kind of guy who would try to lie to get out of it. And so depending on what state you're in, too, there also might be additional protections. Like I know in, in New York State, for example, there are like particular laws protecting employees from racial slurs and comments uh, at work that's even broader than, than Title VIII. So again, I would really just encourage you to like uh, call a couple of uh, employment rights lawyers in your area. Often you can get like a free or very minimal cost like consults call just to have, have a general sense. And again, that's not because I think your first move should be to bring a lawsuit, but because I think it can only help you to know more about your protections. This sounds pretty clear cut. 
And anything that will put the fear of God into this company is a good thing. Anything that makes it really clear that like the cheapest and most expedient thing for them to do is to fire this guy. um, That's what I would want. So um, I would say absolutely. And really just stick to the facts of what you heard. You don't have to mention talking to a lawyer yet, but you can absolutely reference any relevant uh, state laws about uh, hostile work environments and and like racist comments in the workplace. It just anything that makes it really clear that the way forward is not for him to explain. No, no, no. I was just telling a story like it doesn't matter in what context he said it. He said it. And that is itself the problem. And again, I I really, really hope that this immediately goes over both of their heads. But I think the other reason I want you to be able to talk to a lawyer is worst case scenario, if your own supervisor and other members of HR try to weasel their way out of it or say it's not that bad or the real problem is that you overheard it, then I want you to know that you have other backup options that will protect you so that you don't suffer retaliation or feel like you have to um, like let this one go because you need the health insurance. Like This is exactly what those laws were put in place to, to try to prevent happening. Yeah. like You definitely don't want to leave it to the company to put all the pieces together. You, do, you definitely want to be able to come prepared with the right citations. Even if you don't say you've spoken to a lawyer, you should make it clear that you understand the protections and that you can outline them for the company in case they are not clear on that. It just it's really tough because whatever path you go, you're the one having to suck it up, right? No one wants to have to sue their company. No one wants to have to go to a lawyer to get their rights vindicated. No one wants to have to leave their job and find another one because there is a racially hostile work environment. Every kind of path at this point is one where this letter writer is going to be the one doing the extra work to make it right for themselves. And that is really unfair and it really sucks. But out of all the options, it does seem like the best way is to immediately, yeah, make it clear that you that you know the protections that you have as a worker and that you're not going to let it slide. And hopefully the company will be profoundly shaken by that and will make it right. Hopefully. Yeah. And I'm just so sorry too, both for the initial conversation and also that it kept going. And that not only did this guy keep trying to debate you about whether it was cool for him to say the worst racial slur there is at work, um, but that HR was not only involved in the moment, but was involved on that guy's side, trying to get you to agree that it was good that he said that. It's just... I, I, it's no wonder that you feel hopeless. Like that is additionally horrifying and such an abuse of what HR, even like a worst case scenario of like HR is kind of ineffective, but is mostly looking out for the company's bottom line is the sort of like pessimistic view of HR, which is like the best interest of the company is to not expose themselves to like a cut and dry racial discrimination lawsuit. And so like, even by the standards of HR is not great, this is so bad. Yeah, it's just profoundly depressing. Yeah, frankly, about just the state of this country and like the reality of of the workplace and how easily it can turn hostile. And yeah, there is something about HR being involved that just like underlines how little care there is in a lot of situations. Yeah. I mean, it it comes back to like HR associates are are also people. They're not perfectly rational actors who are protecting the company's bottom line. No one involved in the company is. Sometimes they just suck and they're more concerned with being comfortable in the moment or glossing over tension in the workplace, or they agree with the terrible beliefs that are being espoused. And that takes precedence over both their like actual structural responsibility to protect the company and also their human responsibility to stand up for the person who's actually being victimized in the situation. Like this is just an HR associate who's just like acting like a a bully, like they're siding with the bully. And that's, that's really troubling. My sort of last thought here would be for the letter writer, obviously the best case scenario would be 
someone further up in HR and management investigates this and both of them are let go from their positions. Um, but in the meantime, I think the thing that you can consider asking your supervisor when you file this complaint is to say, I one thing I need to be able to get my job done is I need to not be sitting next to this person and I need neither of them to be trying to talk to me again about this. Um, and so having that kind of specific request, like, I don't want to have to worry about when I'm trying to do my job that either of these two people are going to try to waylay me and argue again that it's okay for them to use racial slurs at work. So the thing I'm asking right now, in addition for an investigation, is that the company handles making sure these two people don't continue to racially harass me. And I think that's a, a very easy uh, request to accommodate immediately that does not require an investigation, but for them to, the company to go out of their way to make sure you don't have to continue to like deal with that because my guess would be especially once they knew you'd filed a complaint it seems very likely to me that their next move would be to try to waylay you to convince you to like let it go and i think again you just totally deserve the company to uh handle that one on your behalf rather than to have to do it yourself but please do write back with any updates if you can i'm again just so 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 sorry and i hope they both experience bad things and I won't get any more specific than that. <laughs> All right, we can move into sort of blessedly more complex problem. I say blessedly more complex just because I think this next question involves genuinely thoughtful, caring parents trying to make sense of you know, the responsibility of caring for a child and trying to make decisions on a child's behalf and how you weigh that against increasing autonomy as your kid gets older. And so obviously there's still like difficult elements in this letter, but it's 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 a lot better than horrible people who wish me ill work with me. Uh, and so the subject here is birth assignment, guilt assignment. One of our children was assigned male at birth. As a child, the doctor noticed that one testicle remained undescended due to what at the time we considered the risk of delayed puberty, and certainly because of an increased risk of testicular cancer, we opted for surgical intervention at around eight years old. Our kid told us they were bisexual a few years ago, and last year let us know that they are trans. They'd like gender-affirming care and are somewhere between gender-neutral and trans-feminine. I want them to be able to do as much or as little as they would like in order to transition and to feel fully themselves. We're waiting for the referral doctor to call us for the first appointment to start hormones. Our kid is 17 and a half, having already gone through puberty and now experiencing terrible depression because of inherited early male pattern baldness as well as facial hair. The wait time for the first doctor's appointment is excruciating. We have public health care in Canada, so I don't know a way to get around it. I feel like we made a mistake opting for surgery years ago. Their puberty would have been suppressed and, in my imagination, they would have been happier in their body. I feel guilty, even though at the time I was genuinely afraid of an increased cancer risk, as well as possible infertility or, quote, feeling less like a man someday. I don't know what my question is. I just feel really bad and want to help my child to feel at home in their body. I feel like I should apologize, but I don't know if that would make things even worse at this point. Mm. Yeah, say, I mean, same oh, here, right? Like both of these yeah. letters, I just really feel for the letter writer. Yeah, and it just sounds like a really good parent who is really trying to support their kid. And my heart just broke reading this letter a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, did you have any kind of thoughts about where would be best to start, whether it would be talking about some of the feelings the letter writer has about their own past choices, about their relationship with their kid now, about additional forms of support they might be able to seek out, anything that sort of feels like, oh, here's where we'd want to start? Yeah, I mean, I might be the only parent on the call. I, I have a three-year-old son, and so that was the first place that my mind went was just the feeling of guilt for a decision you made for your child that you thought was the best possible decision. And then to find out that maybe you are wrong when it's too late to change that decision just is very haunting to me. And I think on that front, I, I feel like they have to let go of that because they did the best they could with the information they had at the time and with the best interest of their child at heart and not 
interests that had to do exclusively with like gender presentation, but also with genuine health concerns. And you just can't, they couldn't have known this outcome would ensue. And they couldn't have made the decision based on the risk of the outcome that is now happening. Right? Like, they looked at all of the possible outcomes that they had in mind, and they they tried to take the best interest of their child in, in the future into account. And now there's this other consequence that they could not have known at the at the time they made the decision. And so to hold on to that guilt, I almost feel like it is taking their attention away from supporting the child they have now. And I really sympathize with that feeling of regret and wanting to be able to go back and do it a different way. But the focus I do think needs to be on what can be done to support their kid now. And it sounds like it's a, it, they're in a tough situation with what can be done now, given the constraints they describe. But that that is where they can make a difference. Yeah, I, I think that's a really useful place to start, too. And um, my my one thought that I was sort of curious about towards the end was I feel like I should apologize to them presumably specifically about that choice to pursue a surgical intervention when their kid was eight. And I don't want to make like a ruling one way or the other, but I, I would be curious, letter writer, to know like this was when your kid was eight. So this was not something that happened like when they were a newborn. So presumably this is something you've talked about at least once or twice. Like it, this didn't seem to me like a really clear cut case of we like pursued medical intervention at birth and our kid doesn't know. So I, I believe that a kid who's 17 now, you know, at eight years old, I don't think that was the era of like, we're going to pursue a surgical intervention and lie to the kid and say, oh, you got your appendix out. That feels like more of a 60s, 70s thing. But I do just want to mention if if you didn't talk to your child about it at the time and if your child doesn't necessarily know what happened, I do think this is something you should discuss but in that case, before I would encourage you to have that conversation, I would suggest that you do so like with a family therapist, particularly one who is um, experienced in working with families with trans kids and, and intersex kids. Again, I don't feel at all confident in making any kind of a call here about whether or not undescended testicles is something that does or doesn't qualify as an intersex condition or whether or not that might point to a possible intersex condition. I, I genuinely did not come away from this feeling really sure one way or the other. And certainly something like an increased cancer risk sounds like a concern that is much more sort of serious than like, you know, when our when our newborn was born, the doctor said we should correct the appearance of your kid's genitals so they look more normal. Like that would feel like a pretty clear-cut case of like unnecessary corrective intersex surgery of the type that like a lot of activists are attempting to push back against. And this felt a little bit more up in the air. So I guess I would mostly, I'm saying this to encourage the letter writer, maybe seek out some more information for organizations that uh, are supportive of parents who have intersex kids. Not because I read this letter and thought, oh, you definitely do or you definitely don't. Just that there's enough overlap there or potential overlap that you might find that they're able to answer some of your questions. So I was thinking in particular, there's a pamphlet that came out through the organization IGLYO called Supporting Your Intersex Child. Um, and you can just find it. Uh, it's, it's, it's literally just at IGLYO.com. It's just a pamphlet called Supporting Your Intersex Child. There's also the Intersex Society of North America. Um, and, and I would just recommend, again, not that you have to go join or like say that's definitely what my kid is or what I am, so much as just they, I think they would be a good place to go if you're not sure or you have questions or concerns so that you don't necessarily make things harder for your kid by like bursting into tears and saying like, I think I did something terrible when you were eight, which could itself be painful. Yeah, I guess that was my one thought about of like my one note of caution in terms of apologizing is making sure that that if that conversation is had, it's done in a way that doesn't put more on on the kid or doesn't make your child feel like in their moment of need that they need to comfort you, the parent, or alleviate you of guilt. And I don't think that that is what the letter writer is intending to do, but I think that that would just be something that I would like keep in mind. Yeah. And also to suddenly approach them 
if they don't know the full context of the surgery, which I think an eight-year-old to me falls into that age where they would definitely know there was a surgery, but they might not know the full extent of the reasoning around it, you know? Like they might have been told that there are health risks and so they need to have this corrective surgery. They might not have been told like, oh, we want to make sure you don't feel like less of a man when you get older. I would be surprised if they told an eight-year-old every component of the decision. So to suddenly like approach your child and be like, I'm so sorry that we made this decision that contributed to the suffering you're having now. And it was partly for reasons that are probably very hard for you to hear. That seems like it could cause like a lot of extra confusion and pain for the kid and then transfer to the kid that feeling of, perhaps regret over something that can't be changed. And so it definitely would be something you would want to, like you said, uh, like you both said, like approach extremely sensitively so that they don't wind up with their own new regret and that you've just kind of like handed it off to your child. I think especially too, that's such a good point. You know, it's not as if the letter writer is saying, and my kid has brought up a few times, I really regret this. So, I mean, again, we're we're leaving room for the possibility that the kid doesn't have a full understanding of what happened. But my sense was that generally they're aware of the the surgery that they received when they were eight. And it's not so much that the kid is bringing this up so much as the kid has expressed like pain and suffering around like their first puberty that they had to undergo. And the letter writer is sort of adding on top of that, oh gosh, and if I had known earlier what my kid would be going through, I might have made a different decision, which is just, there's already so much like difficulty or suffering to come in life. I think whenever there's an opportunity not to add unnecessarily to it, you should take it. And so I would just say, if your kid's not coming to you and saying, this is something I'm really upset about, um, to the best of your ability, when you notice that guilt coming up of just like, I could have prevented my child's suffering. I would encourage you to try to let some of that go. Not all of it, because again, like, I I truly don't know. I'm not a medical professional. Um, I don't know what levels of increased cancer risk you were looking at. I don't know if surgery at eight would have been very different from saying, well, can we do surgery at 13? Would that change the cancer risk? I don't know. So you may or may not get some of those questions answered if you wanted to go talk to another doctor just to purely put your mind at ease or to learn more about the potential risks. I just don't know. So I don't want to say either you you did what you had to do or you did something that you shouldn't have done or it was mostly about normative like gender stuff um, with a little bit of like lip service to medical risk painted on top. I just don't know. So I don't want to say in any one direction or another, you made the wrong choice. You made the right choice. You made the only choice you could have, or there were other options you you didn't pursue. I will say you didn't do anything that that really leapt off the page to me is like, wow, you seem like you're really not able to be honest with yourself about your motives, or it seemed like you were just really thoughtless. Um, I, I just, again, I read this and I see someone who really cares about their kid and is thinking really carefully about autonomy and growth. So I think I also then just want to switch gears a little bit and speak to what's going on now, which is like your kid is going through something that a lot of trans people have experienced, which is anybody who transitions after puberty has to figure out how to relate to um trying to undo, neutralize, counteract, or learn to live with the effects of their first puberty. And and so, you know, it's something that I have had to do in my own transition. Um, my, my partner has had to do in hers. Lots of people in my life have had to do as well, which is not to say, hey, it's no big deal, just that there's a lot of community knowledge out there. And I would really encourage you to find, if you haven't already, like age appropriate or, or even like mixed age, like of all ages, given that your kid's almost 18, um, LGBT support groups in your area, because I promise you there's a wealth of knowledge about uh, uh, arresting and even sometimes reversing hair loss among trans people. There's finasteride, there's Rogaine, there's, uh, you know, eventually some evidence to suggest that feminizing HRT can also do more than just halt baldness. Although again, that's not like a guarantee or like you're going to get all this hair back. But there are things you could be talking to your kid's doctor about right now. Like a finasteride prescription or getting Rogaine is not something you need to wait until you start HRT for. And so I would say like, get on that now. Um, Same with electrolysis uh, or or lasering facial hair. That's something you can get started on right now. I I don't want to assume that you're just like made of money that you can throw around. But if it's at all a Affordable for you to start doing out of pocket, start doing it now. These are things that 
trans people since a, a very long time have had to tr figure out ways to deal with it. And um, we, we have a lot of options out there. So those are things that can be addressed right now without spending too much time imagining if only I'd known in the past. Because again, you don't know, gosh, maybe there would have been other complications if you hadn't pursued the surgery then. You just don't know. There's not one thing you could have done that could have spared your kid some of the pain that can come with transitioning. And I think that's mostly what I wanted to express to this letter writer is it's good to reflect on how you could have done some things differently, but at a certain point it can become morbid to dwell and it's better to let some of those feelings like be open to the possibility that you could have done something differently so you can really engage with your kid and say like, I'm with you, I'm here, I'm listening, but, but not just get so stuck in the past that you're like, oh, I blighted your life. Yeah, that, that's all incredible uh, advice and guidance. And I think to that point, like it's important to note that there's no guarantee that cert puberty would have been delayed, it sounds like, by by not doing this procedure. There isn't even a way to look back and say, I definitely could have prevented this from happening. What there is a way of doing is pursuing all of these pathways that that you are laying out. And there is very much a way to to take your kids lead on this, to make yourself really open to talking about all of their feelings about all of this. And what they need to hear from you and and what they need you to do to help them feel better and more at home in their body right now. And I think you're right that like taking these practical approaches is like the absolute number one priority. Yeah, I think that makes so much sense. Yeah, my my last suggestion is diyhrt.wiki, that's dot W-I-K-I forward slash transfem for more information, since you mentioned you don't know what alternatives you might have to waiting until Canada supplies you with a doctor. That is one option. I just think ultimately this child, um, when they look back and they're into their 20s, they're going to remember that their parent was in their corner now mm -hmm. through this really difficult time. And so I think like, as you both said, the more that this letter writer can focus on the ways in which they can show up in this moment, rather than dwelling on past decisions that can't be changed, I think that's going to be more helpful to, to their mental health and also to their kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's often the case that the closer you are to having been able to change something, Sometimes the more you can feel sort of stuck on it. So like for me, given that I didn't start consciously thinking about transitioning until I was about 30, certainly there were times when I thought in some ways, wow, it would have been great to have, you know, caught this sooner and like started HRT when I was, uh, you know, 13 and, and ended up like 5'10". But it was also like, I'm 30. Puberty was a long time ago. It didn't feel like, oh man, I actually could have changed that. So it just sort of felt like, well, I'd like to be taller or I'd like to have not had to deal with um, top surgery, but it is what it is. As opposed to, I think in some ways it would be really challenging to be like 16, 17, trying to get on HRT and feeling like, man, I'm just a couple of years away from having been able to make different kinds of interventions. And that would feel just like, oh, I almost had it, you know? So in some ways, it's a little bit easier for me to say just like, well, puberty was what it was because it was like, that was 20 years ago, 15 years ago. I'm not going to be able to change that as opposed to like, oh, five minutes ago, I would have had it. Yeah. And yeah. like, it's almost oh. still ongoing. Like you're 17, your body is still like, is still changing. And so every day that you can't address it, you have that in your mind of like, I'm missing the boat. It's happening right now. It happened two years ago. Like this kid is really in the midst of it. And so is the parent for, you know, by extension, but especially the kid yeah. in the midst of that. And it's just like, it It just makes you feel so infuriated with the the whole like pearl clutching over puberty blockers and, and trans kids healthcare. And like going through a, a, a puberty that you don't want to go through is so traumatic and like the trauma that this kid is experiencing is so real and every day that they have to wait for the health care must be so difficult and i it must be really hard to to know that it's just happening around you and you can't stop it yeah but i i think that's just really wise just the idea of like do some reflecting on the past seek out some information um and any kind of support you can get as a parent of a trans potentially intersex child look for those organizations look for that support find other parents in similar positions so that you can talk to other people who have been through what you're going through and you don't feel so alone 
but do spend more of your energy focusing on how can I ask my kid what they need from me now? How can I help them in the moment? How can I find them support groups they can go to this month? How can I be there for them in ways that are useful? That's also going to be your better way forward. It's very like the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The second best time is today, <laughs> which is really cheesy, but it's also, I think, really helpful. Like, True. <laughs> I can understand needing to like mourn and go through some of those feelings about puberty. And also at a certain point, it's so much more important to say, look, 17 and a half is the youngest I'll be able to start. Let's focus on that. Let's figure out how I'm going to like get the meds I need in the near future and just be grateful. Like as you were saying, there's still some changes that you are experiencing often between 17 and 20. It's it's not the same as as preventing puberty the first go around, but it's definitely, you know, it's 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 younger than 30. So um, <laughs> there's that. How are you two doing? How are you feeling? How does this compare to talking about dating shows? Oh, my gosh. So much more high pressure. I know. There are real people out there who are making decisions based on our our half-baked ideas. And people in in truly difficult situations and questions that I'm like, I don't know what you should. I don't know the right thing. Like that feels like a lot of a lot of weight. And it's, you're very good at what you do, yeah. Danny. <laughs> yeah, we're taking cues. Often when, we wa- when we're recapping reality shows, we fall into giving advice to the contestants, but we know they're not listening, you know? <laughs> if they listened, <laughs> it's in stakes. the future. Yeah, we know our advice is not in any position to be taken. So this is, it feels much more um, high stakes and and we're yeah we're very impressed at, at how how thoughtful you are i well i wonder too because i know you you mentioned in, in your uh copy that you know the show is a snarky but affectionate dissection of dating reality tv shows and i was wondering if you have a sense of do you feel like most people who watch them have a similar sort of like affectionate distance where they both sort of understand the sort of like kabuki theater nature of it and they see it more as like these are like archetypes enacting certain like dating compulsions or patterns or traumas that might be common to a lot of viewers. But we mostly understand that this is like not about watching two people genuinely get to know each other in a pressure-free environment. It's more like, you know, like Greek theater where like people with big masks are like, I am Zeus. And so you're like giving advice, but it's more really for somebody watching at home who's like, oh, this reminds me of my last three boyfriends. Does that question make sense? Yeah, I I think that's certainly how we try to approach these shows. Like our whole reason for, for starting a podcast to talk about these things is to sort of take that zoom out and like look at what tropes are being being enacted and what does that say about the culture that we are all enmeshed in and and what does it say about what we value specifically in the space of romance, courtship, love. And I think in terms of the audience who consumes these shows, it really is an even mix. And I think even from moment to moment, how much you like put on the individuals you're watching can change. Like I think we like to think that most of us are watching with this safe distance and yet we have witnessed the way in which people have a tendency to personalize things that they see happening on reality television and have like real anger that is directed towards an individual on a show without perhaps being able to pull themselves back and see all of the different forces that went into creating that one very like juicy, buzzy or upsetting scene. And so I think it's it's complicated. You almost are need to buy in to an extent to enjoy these shows. And so I think we're in like a constant dance of trying to enjoy ourselves and also pull ourselves back and say like, what's actually going on here and what is the messaging? Yeah, that's I I do feel like it it isn't a difference in like one group of audience members and another group. I think it's every audience member is holding both of those things yeah. <laughs> at the same time. Like I don't know how WWE fans do this, like if they all choose to sort of buy into the storylines while knowing that they're scripted or if it's a more self-conscious appreciation. But the way that I see it play out with The Bachelor is that we all know 
that these are highly produced, that they're highly edited, and that they're put together in a way to slot these people into archetypes that we can either identify with or get mad at. Like they send one contestant out with like the proverbial like wifey mask and the other one with the proverbial villain mask and we all react accordingly. But of course, even viewers like us who know that so well, like if you don't genuinely get mad at the villain, then you you aren't invested in the show. <laughs> like you're watching, <laughs> right. you're like, I know this is fake. I know this is fake. I'm so mad at her right now. And it doesn't really make sense. It's complete like cognitive dissonance. But I think that that is how most of us watch reality TV. We know that we don't really know who these people are. We don't really know what happened, but we have to believe in what we're being presented with and to some extent to, to keep getting what we get from the show. And I would have to imagine there's been a shift. I wouldn't know exactly when it would have started, but kind of like SNL in the mid nineties, when you would get the first generation of in, in SNL's case, cast members and on the bachelor contestants who have grown up watching the show. And so who now have internalized the way that the show works that informs uh, their joining it um, in a way that is even more like preemptive meaning than somebody who had watched the show for several seasons and, and understood the sort of paces you go through. Um, and I, I have to imagine that that sort of like adds its own layer of, of complication to it. It actually happens so fast when you see a new dating show start, like the first season of The Bachelor or even the first season of something like Love is Blind, which is much more recent. You can see within like the first season is so naive, like everyone is kind of at the mercy of production because they don't really understand the format or what they're supposed to be doing and then by like season two or three everyone's watched the show and they're like oh i know what's going on here and they know what's expected of them and the turnaround is just like incredibly quick yeah Yeah. it happens very quickly and the incentives have changed so drastically since these shows you know started like reality tv what had its first kind of little explosion in like 2001 2002 survivor and bachelor and now there's just so many shows and we also have social media these entire ecosystems that exist around these shows and mechanisms by which to like monetize whatever you do on those shows and so it just creates all of these layers where it's impossible to kind of tease out why someone is there and why they are making the decisions they are making, like how much of that is production, how much of that is, you know, subconsciously playing a role that they've kind of come in prepared to play, how much of it is is a reaction they would have genuinely in in the real world. And it's like probably all of those things at once all of the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it makes it really sticky to to watch and try to talk about. Yeah, I remember I I hadn't watched many episodes of The Bachelor since the first couple of seasons. And then a year or so ago, I was staying with my friend Lindy, and I saw that she had a book called How to Win the Bachelor. Um, I don't know (laughs) if that's something you're familiar with, but I read the whole thing the weekend I was staying there. And I was like, oh, my God, like I was so invested. I was like, it did feel like picking up like a WWE show Bible, except (laughs) I don't care about wrestling at all. And I definitely care about judging heterosexual dating rituals. Absolutely. Um, Much more fun. Immensely. So I just like (laughs) tore through it. and I was like, oh, this is brilliant. This is great. And totally could see my way through like. Yeah, it's about like embodying your role to the best of your ability. And especially there's stuff about like whether you're a villain or whether you're in some other category, um, trying to demonstrate that you're there for the right reasons and that you understand the goals of the show and that you like that the worst thing you can do is act like you don't care um, or fail to care about the thing you have been assigned to care about. And and I, I loved that. I thought that was such a fun book. Yeah, our friends Chad and Lizzie wrote wrote that book. They have a great podcast, Game of Roses. We love them. I, what I think is interesting, though, is that there are now all of these cast members that have come up, like, knowing so much about how the sausage is made and even maybe reading that book. And yet they still make decisions that aren't maybe, like, rational in terms of setting themselves up in the best way to like answer the goals of the show. And so there's always a human element to reality television that remains unpredictable. And that's also kind of why it, why it's still good. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Gosh. Okay. Well, I need to start watching more reality TV again, which is, or at least oh, like gosh. non-baking I'm reality I'm so sorry. TV. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> listen, no one can make me watch more TV. I only watch TV because I enjoy it. This is not a problem at all. Um, but this is like rekindled my love in certain kinds of like fake interpersonal tension in a way that's very fun. Yes, it is fun. Before I let you go, I'm going to read a quick update from a listener that I'm very excited about because I think I'm going to be able to shed some light on some old slang, which is one of my favorite things to get to do. Um, This is from a a call I put out a while back for folksy expressions that seem to run in people's families. So this one, folk expressions. I am the lucky custodian of my grandmother's diary from her college freshman year, 1914 UT Austin. There is a word, perip, that she uses as both a verb and a noun. Peripped. Did the perip. From context, it seems that it means something on the order of bummed around or hung out. My hunch is that it derives from periphery. I find no reference to the expression when I Google it. I am well aware that pre-radio and pre-talkies, there were probably lots of hyper-local, hyper-topical slang coinages that blossomed and fell away, leaving no trace. Could you point this out to your listeners to find out if anyone else has heard the expression and might know more? I love this, first of all. I wish so much that I had, like, an old ancestor's diary, and I'm jealous that I don't. Same. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. 1914. (laughs) Wow. Uh, do either of you have any like old timey slang that came down to you and your families that you can think of off the top of your head? Oh no, no, just things my dad made up. My my dad had all kinds of random ones like Snoopsy instead of Booger. Oh my, and, Snoopsy. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought that's what they were called <laughs> until I was like twelve. Um, <laughs> and and like Glipper instead of Remote Control. I don't think that's specific to our family, but it's it's not the I've usual never one. Heard that. Yeah, I but I don't think that we have anything dating back down the line. Now I'm like, my family is just really boring. I can't think of anything. <laughs> uh, so I, I have a possible answer for this letter writer that I want to throw out there. And I, I don't feel at all like, oh, this is definitely it. I think periphery is a, a pretty good guess. But uh, I, I think it could refer to, and I, I've only ever seen this word written, so apologies if I'm mispronouncing it, paraplus or paraplus, um, which is like a, a manuscript document that lists ports and coastal landmarks. It's like um, the naval equivalent of itinerariums or itinerariae, I guess. I don't know Latin. Um, but I was thinking, especially if she was a college student in 1914, my guess is there would be a broader familiarity with classical Greek and Latin than there is on college campuses now. And so, like, some of the known paraply uh, include, like, the paraplus of Himilco the Navigator or Hanno the Navigator, two famous Carthaginians uh, who, who made pretty uh, significant ancient voyages around the Mediterranean and parts of Africa. And so I wonder if it's, like, a reference to going from stop to stop on, like, um, circumnavigation of campus. And so it's a sort of, like, highfalutin way to describe, oh, I just, like, wandered from the malt shop over to the you know general store to the uh, choir practice back to my dorm um, and sort of making it sound as if you were Hanno the Navigator setting out on the Mediterranean. Um, that's my best guess. Not certainly the definitive answer, but uh, I was very excited because I was like, oh, I know a word that could mean this <laughs> because uh, I was just listening to a bunch of podcasts about Carthage last month. That's so solid. I yeah. would. I'm ready to put that into the OED right now. And that's how convinced I am. I'm going to yeah, start you've saying made a it. Case. You've made a very good case. <laughs> yeah. I'm into it. I'm going to start saying, "Oh, I peripped around campus yesterday." Uh, <laughs> although I don't live near a college campus, so I'll have to find someplace else to perip. But at any rate, I'll, I'll go perip on my way home. I'll, I'll walk around slowly. And it seems. I mean, I, I'm not a classicist. It seems like it would be linguistically related to periphery. So there is like a. A, an overlap a link. there. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure periphery and paraplus are definitely connected themselves. It just seems like the kind of like sort of like vaguely Latin culture colleges used to have where like people would like call home and say like, hello, mater, instead of hi, <laughs> yeah, mom. And- I was going to say the same thing. 
I buy it. But the payday. I think yeah, it's actually got that convincing. from Mr. Burns doing it when his mom called on the, on the Simpsons and he'd say, oh, hello, Mater. <laughs> um, and I thought that was really Feels cool. Feels very PG Woodhouse to me for some reason. You know, the Simpsons came into my life before Woodhouse. So definitely by the time I heard <laughs> Bertie Wooster talking about Pater and Mater, that solidified it for me. <laughs> Um, thank you both so, so much. This was absolutely delightful. Uh, if you ever need somebody on your show uh, to talk about Hannah the Navigator and how that connects to modern dating conventions, please uh, give me a ring. That sounds like something we definitely need. Yeah, I was going to say don't offer because we're going to take you up <laughs> on it. That's why I <laughs> offered. I would love it. It would be delightful. <laughs> Thanks so much for having this. This yeah, was, thank this was you. a very stressful amount of responsibility, but it was it was also a lot of fun. Well, and just as always, remember, no one has to listen to us. So it's entirely possible right. that everybody who wrote in doesn't listen to this episode and therefore never hear what we have to say. Uh, and it's also possible they listen and think, that sounds stupid. I'm not going to do it. And then they get to do whatever they want. Yeah, please feel that is free beautiful. to disregard my advice. Yeah, others abide the question, <laughs> thou art free. Thank you both so much. Have a fabulous, fabulous rest of your day and uh, come back soon. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, Maybe you need a little advice. Maybe you need some big advice. Head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I think really the, the one thing I hope you didn't do and the one thing I would advise you against ever doing is saying, I'm really upset with you. Now let's go on this trip where I'm going to be really vulnerable and you're my only form of support. That's the worst yeah. choice of all of them. Yeah, that was, uh, I was shocked that that was presented yeah. as an I feel option. sad Why that that was ever? an option. Me too. Yeah, it it is this weird way in which the only thing that the letter writer is considering doing about the fact that their friend didn't get Baxton boosted is telling them that they're upset about it when it seems to me that you could get away without e ever even saying that by just saying, I, I don't feel comfortable going on the trip with you anymore. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.